What are the ailments? Ailments, you know, disorders. What are the ailments or disorders of your family? You know, think about it in your mind. Now extend that. What are the ailments and disorders of your extended family? What are the ailments and disorders of your acquaintances? Your community? You know, I was uh, talking with our gardener, you know, the landlord. They hire the, the gardener to take care of the home that we rent. And I was talking to Diego, um, nice guy, and he learned that I was a Christian. He learned that I was a pastor, and he actually was a pastor's kid. So we were having this conversation, and he looked at me funny when I told him, you know, I'm a pastor. And, you know, I'm a young guy. Uh, he's much older than me, maybe 40. Not much. Actually, that's just four years older than me. <laughs> um, and he goes, so you no drink? And I don't know where he's coming from. Okay, this is my extended, this is, this is my community, right? These are the people that I run into on a regular basis. And Diego says, so you don't drink? And I don't know where he's coming from. He might come from a legalistic background that says all drinking is sin. So I told him, I said, you know, Diego, the Bible doesn't say that drinking is a sin. The Bible says that getting drunk is a sin and absolutely not. I do not get drunk. I barely, I barely have alcohol, but I certainly do not get drunk. I said, that's what I used to do, but I, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I don't do that anymore. He, you know, he had this puzzled look on his face, and then he goes, no mamacita? No mamacita? And uh, at first I didn't know what mamacita means, so I looked at his, his, his friend, his cousin, I said, so what does this mean? He said, you know, no woman on the side. And I said, oh no. I said, I'm happily married, and the Bible says that I am to love my wife, and my life, wife is to love me. And there's no option for a divorce. Um, it's interesting, you know, it, I, me as a Christian, interacting with these folks, they know that Christians are supposed to be different from the world. You know, even in the very ways that they ask me, you know, so, you know, you're not cheating on the side, you sure you're not drinking. They know that Christians are supposed to be different from them. Diego wouldn't say he is a believer. Our church is supposed to be distinct from the world. And every church, every local church, is supposed to be distinct from the world in what we believe and also in the ways that we behave. Not only as individuals, so each of us, you know, we go out and live our separate lives. Yes, we are supposed to be distinct. But even in how we relate to one another, we are supposed to be distinct from the way that the world relates to one another. And in our passage this morning, we look exactly at this. We look at how Christians are to be different in belief, but then also in behavior. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. Certainly towards the end of the Bible. So if you go to Revelation and just turn forward, um, eventually you get to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. This, this letter was written by a man named Paul, and he was a, a, a servant of the church. And he was a man that God used to build the church along with other apostles and along with the other disciples. And this letter was written sometime in the middle of the first century, so certainly it's old. And he wrote it to a man named Timothy, or sorry, Titus. And Titus was a young church planter, a young church pastor, kind of like myself. And they were friends together, they went on missions together, and eventually Paul charges him with his own mission. 
He says, you go to the island of Crete, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean, and you start that church there. We know from the book of Acts that a bunch of Christians went to, um, a bunch of people, I should say, from Crete, went to Jerusalem for the Passover, this festival. They become Christians, and they return to the island of Crete, but they don't have a pastor, and there's no order in the church. And Paul says, you, Titus, go and plant that church. Bring order to that church. Preach the gospel. And Crete had a reputation. Crete had a bad reputation. Um, History shows that the Cretans, they believed that highway robbery was okay. And so you can imagine in a community like that, imagine what it would be like if we thought robbery from robbing one another was okay. I mean, we would be walking around making sure our, our wallets are always in our pants, right? Or in our purses. But that's the kind of community that Crete was. And so it's fascinating then what Paul encourages Titus to do in light of the way the world acts. You know, what is he going to tell the church? How is he going to instruct the church to act? What is he going to tell the church to believe? Belief and behavior. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole entire chapter. But what I want you to notice is, is that front loaded in the chapter are all these instructions for morals. Okay, so any Christian who says morals don't matter, like good deeds don't matter, they're absolutely wrong. Because we see that there are a bunch of morals front-loaded in this text, how you are to behave, but then it's all rooted in what comes at the end of the chapter, namely what they are to believe. So, so what they are to believe is sort of like the seedbed that morals spring from. It, it's really encouraging. I mean, Pastor Rick last week, as he walked through the book of Romans, looked at this also what they are to believe and then towards the end of romans he looked at how they are to behave it's the same thing here and we continue the same series dealing with church life church leadership things like that let's look at titus chapter 2 1 to 15 and the setting here is that there are false teachers in the church they're teaching things for evil gain i mean they're greedy they're preaching false doctrine just so they can get money. So that goes with the highway robbery thing. And this is what he tells Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Okay, that's all morals. That's all how we are to act and behave. And then look at what he roots it in. For, that's a reason, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So in the beginning, he says, live this way. And then he says, it's all rooted in belief. And you get that for, that's, that's a reason statement. This is the reason why we are to live this way. It's because of the gospel. And this is our outline today. We're just going to look at the gospel and how it forms gospel community. And then how it continues gospel witness. So really it's gospel, gospel community, and then gospel witness. So if you're taking notes, that's what it is. Um, and you see there that, that in 2 verse 1, Titus here is supposed to teach things which accords with sound doctrine. And it gets us wondering the question, well, what exactly is this sound doctrine if he's supposed to teach things that accord with it? What is this sound doctrine, he says? Um, you know, some of you guys, you know, you might you might hear the word doctrine and already you're just basically going to go to bed. Doctrine, it sounds boring, it sounds stale. To some of you all, you may think, you may associate the word doctrine with indoctrination. And so you're wondering about us, me in particular, what, what kind of truths, what kind of dry man-made truths is this man going to shove down my throat? Or at least attempt to, because there's no way I'm going to be indoctrinated. So there you think that those beliefs come from man, as if we make it up. But if that's anything close to what you think of, when you think and hear the words of sound doctrine, please know that that's so far from what the Bible describes as sound doctrine. It does, in fact, concern truths, absolutely. But they're certainly not man-made. But they're personal, and they come from God himself. God himself. It's about God the Son incarnate and the truths that surround him. So really when it comes to sound doctrine, it concerns a historical reality. Not just man-made truths, but a historical reality that actually took place and that we can search the historical books for these things. I mean, look at how Paul talks about the dawning of men's salvation, right? Think historical reality there in verse 11. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You guys know the, the definition of grace? It's unmerited favor from God. It's fascinating the way he talks about this. For the grace of God has appeared. So here you're, you're thinking about the unmerited favor of God that dwells in the heavenlies, all of a sudden making its grand appearance. You know, you can think of like the clouds parting and finally the sun shines. I mean, that's kind of what it's like here. Well, the Son of God descends from the heavenlies and the grace of God is made manifest to us, appears to us. This is the appearing of his son here. Um, but not only has it appeared, so he looks back to this great reality, this historical reality, the appearing of, of the grace of God. Uh, but this grace of God actually does something. Did you guys notice what it does? It does something. First, the grace of God brings salvation. It brings salvation. So this unmerited favor of God brings salvation to man. 
when the clouds part, the heavens are red, and down comes the Son of God, and he takes on flesh. You know, we learn a lot about what our need is just by reading a simple verse like that. We actually need the unmerited favor of God. Well, why do we need unmerited favor of God? Well, could it be if there is unmerited favor of God that I cannot merit God's favor? And so I need the unmerited favor of God to save me because that's what it does. It brings salvation. I'm in need of salvation. Why is it that I'm in need of salvation? I mean, we learn so much about the human condition here. God created man to be in a relationship with him, in a perfect relationship with him, a loving relationship with him. But man rebelled against their God. And because of that, Adam and Eve's first sin, now we all are born into sin and we actually transgress the law of God. You know, so we can think here, have we ever lied before? Have we ever stolen before? Have we ever cheated before? Have we ever gotten drunk before? Mamacita's on the side, maybe. I mean, some of us, that might be our previous life because Paul himself says, such were some of you, he says in the book of Corinthians there. So this would be a known reality that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. And that's why he, uh, he made, he caused his own grace to become manifest to us. God's unmerited favor came to us in Jesus Christ, his son, who died on the cross for our sins so that we would be free. So where I should have died and borne the wrath, Jesus bears the wrath that I deserved. So that I would be free if I repent and believe. I can say, Jesus, you know, save me from my sins. Only you can save because it is your grace that brings salvation to sinners. So, so it, it does something, right? We're looking at what this grace does because this grace saves us. So we want to pay attention to what it does. It brings salvation. But secondly, it trains us. You notice that? It trains us. Um, I'll just repeat that again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is for, all, for anyone who repents, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So it trains us. It's like we're in the school of grace. It saves and trains. So we're to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. But then instead, now we are to live upright, self-controlled, and godly lives in this present age. But it doesn't just stop there, right? So he, he talks about this appearing over here. So this is like a great pole of salvation history. There's great work. And then he says, we are to be trained now in this present age. But he goes on. As we look forward to what? What are we to look forward to there? In verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we have the appearing. You know, the grace of God appeared. That is, Jesus Christ came. And then here, it's like we're being trained, but with a hope towards the second coming. The second great appearing of the great glory of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we, to be, we are to be trained in this present age. Not just, and it's not just us waiting, sort of like, you know, uh, what should we do? This is waiting with the hope, growing in holiness, that we might display his character to the world all the while. 
display his character to the world all the while. And that's exactly why he gave himself for us. Did you notice that? Look there, back in the passage, we want to have our, our eyes looking at it constantly because this communicates hope to us. Uh, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, who is this Jesus Christ? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Redeem us from all lawlessness. That, that's the language there. You know, redemption is like buying something back. And, and what is he redeeming us from? He's redeeming us from lawlessness and wickedness. You know, you can, you can imagine, um, you know, a firefighter who, who, who recognizes that someone is going to die doomed to death in a burning building. And the fireman goes in and he rescues that little kid that little person, and lays them there on the sidewalk. He, he, he redeems us from lawlessness. But is that fireman successful if all he does is just leave us there on the sidewalk? Is that salvation? Uh, here it says no. He redeems us from all lawlessness. But look, look what he, he, he goes on to do something. He purifies, right? He redeems and purifies. That's who Jesus is. He redeems and purifies a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So that fireman, it's like it, he saves, right? He saves by healing. He goes to work or like a doctor. God, so God doesn't just save us from the burning building and lay us there, but he goes to work on us like a doctor. He saves by healing, in fact. You can think about it like a, like a, a jeweler. Uh, my wife's family, I mean, they all came over basically from Hong Kong and they were all jewelers here. Um, and so, you know, the person who shapes the diamond, you know, they might get something straight out of the ground, right? And, and the thing might be worthless if you just look at it briefly, but they go to work on it, right? And they actually make it more beautiful and more beautiful and more beautiful. And they spend a lot of time and energy and they're exerting themselves on this thing, this seemingly dirty, unbeautiful thing, and they make it beautiful. Okay, now, now this next part here, you know, as we're looking at the word again, he saves us, he purifies us for himself. Okay, so you, you have to stop and think about that. Uh, who is our God? Well, he is the perfect God, right? All holy. All beauty resides in him. Perfectly good God. A perfect God. What kind of jewel is fit for a perfect God? Who does everything perfectly? Who, who fashions his crown perfectly? What kind of jewel is, perfect, is, is fitting for this perfect king? Isn't that amazing that he is fitting you all sort of to, to, to put in his crown to be made perfect so that you might bring all the glory to God and not yourself, right? If you are the, these jewels on his crown, but is to bring glory and splendor and to display all of his majesty to the world. He's purifying for himself. Amazing how people like us, once caught and once ruled by sin, are being made perfect because God 
by the power of his spirit and through the work of his cross is making us fit for himself perfecting us of course we don't reach perfection here we reach perfection in heaven this is what ephesians 5 says and here you get this idea of perfecting himself making fit for himself something ephesians 5 christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless Ephesians also says that we have good works to do because God has prepared them for us. And so, as Titus says, we are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. I wonder if you are zealous for good works. You know, as you try and display the Lord's glory in your family, your extended family, and even amidst all of their ailments and um, issues, your community, your acquaintances, Every Christian is enrolled in the school of grace, as one commentator said. And God's grace brings salvation and it trains us for godliness. And that's what everything is rooted in. So in verses 1 to 10, everything is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changes everything, every way that we are to live. And so you can see that here Paul is encouraging Titus to teach the church to be the shining light, the city on the hill amidst Crete. Right? Bad reputation. Highway robbery is a legitimate form of earning income. And here's to be the city on the hill that preaches and proclaims the gospel, that lives out its life changed by the gospel. And that's why behavior is so important. It's connected, always connected. Belief brings or births behavior. And let's look at the behavior now. Uh, This is in verses 1 to 10. Here Paul addresses morals. Morality that's rooted in faith. Ethics that's rooted in faith. And he addresses older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and then slaves. So basically, every, everywhere that you would find a, a Christian, that's who he's going to address. And we'll just have to look at these really briefly. But I want you to get a flavor for what, this, what, this, uh, what he's talking about here. First, he addresses older men. So if you guys consider yourself an older man, then you want to be paying particular attention. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded or temperate. They are to be dignified or worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Okay, so you can already get a flavor of what these older men, how they are supposed to compare to their counterparts, their Cretan counterparts that live in the world. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled? You know, I highly doubt the Cretans were self-controlled. And then Paul addresses older women. Look at verse 3. So if you are an older woman or consider yourself to be an older woman, pay attention here. He addresses how they are to behave. They are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanders or slaves to much wine or addicted to wine. But they are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home. And we're going to comment on that soon, don't worry. Kind and submissive to their own husbands. Not because they are inferior to their husbands, okay? uh, Wives are not supposed to be submissive to their husbands because they are inferior. 
They are, in fact, equal in value, but the Bible says that they differ in role. You get that? Equal in value, different in role. Um, and since Paul gives so much time to addressing women, uh, you know, as we're just trying to preach expositionally here, I think we should give more time to that as well. Um, did you notice who has the particular responsibility of training the women, the younger women? It's the older women. Teach the older women to be, you know, X, Y, and Z, and then they can teach the younger women. The younger women in the church, um, you know, their godliness, living out the basics of the faith, is dependent upon the older women. So that's on your shoulders. However you define older woman. Certainly, uh, Paul here is assuming age. I think he's also thinking about godliness. So if you consider yourself you know, more mature than the average person, training those less mature is on your shoulders. The less mature women are to be trained by the more mature. Of course, it's ultimately up to the elders, as Titus is to teach. But if you are an older woman, think about all the experiences that you have, the wisdom that you have that the younger women don't have. Maybe what it's like to not be a Christian and to hope in the world. And then maybe you get married and then maybe you get divorced. What does it look like to trust in, in, in Jesus in all those things or to look back at some of the mistakes and sins and know God's forgiveness in the midst of all that? That is incredible. Paul says, such were some of you. We all have made mistakes, but yet you probably know what it's like to look back and know no shame, even though we freely make mistakes. We've chosen to do these things. There's so many more things. You know, older women and, in fact, older men, you guys probably know what it's like to lose a loved one. What it looks like to hope in Jesus in the midst of losing a loved one. You know what it's like to have people uh, in your family maybe deny Jesus Christ, where once they might have claimed Jesus Christ. What does that look like for you to hope in Christ in the midst of difficulty? If you consider yourself an older woman, you know so much more than many of us younger folks do. And training the younger women is upon your shoulders. What are you doing to see to it that the younger ladies in the church are pursuing godliness? Now, you might feel like you don't know that much about godliness or even that much about the Bible. But I guarantee you, as believers in Christ, we can all sit down and read the Bible and think and discover and come to know its plain meaning because it is clear. And even in doing something like that and initiating something like that, you help the younger women know what it looks like to live your life as a Christian. Uh, let's let's address busy at home. Okay, so if you are a man and you're looking for a wife who ought to be busy at home, um, or if you're a woman wondering what this exactly means, okay, this, this is really helpful for us. Um, this catches our eye. Busy at home, submission. What, does, what do these things mean? Uh, I think people here, when they come across the words like busy at home, you know, they're tempted to think, oh, Paul is really ultimately concerned about location, where is there an acceptable place to work or to be busy? Uh, and he's saying all work outside the home is sinful. It's unallowable. And only work inside the home is allowable. 
I think that's a really bad way to look at it. Um, he's getting at something different. Here, he's getting at uh, a Christian woman's priorities and responsibilities. So here's an example of what was going on in the day. And Paul, this comes from Paul as he writes in 1 Timothy 5. And these wives, in this case the widows, you know, they were sort of going outside of the home. But it's what they're doing outside the home that is most important. This is what he says. They get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So it's more about what they're doing outside of the home versus um, whether or not they are outside the home. So they have responsibilities, right? But they're just sloughing them off. They don't really care about the responsibilities. They are outside the home, but what they are pursuing outside the home is ungodly. Ungodly. So going back to Titus, or thinking about it, Paul tells Titus to teach the older women to have their priorities straight and fulfill their basic responsibilities. So let me paraphrase, if I might, um, Paul's teaching from verse 3. Older women live reverently before your fellow Cretans. Don't slough off your responsibilities and get drunk with your friends. Wasting the time away. Don't slander and gossip with your friends. Instead, dedicate your time to teaching what is good. Teach the younger women to take care of their most basic God-given responsibilities. Loving their husbands, loving their children, directing their energies at home to be submissive to their husbands. You know, if you're a Christian woman, it's easy to agree that uh, getting drunk um, and gossip like those things are sin, right? That we shouldn't do. But what about the other stuff? That stuff that Titus wants you to teach younger women. Do you associate that with godliness? I mean, let's be honest. It's hard to teach a younger woman to do these things when the world has a completely different agenda for you and young women. This is how the world might want uh, Paul to rewrite this text here. Women, exert your femininity and make sure the Cretans know that you are just as capable, just as tenacious, just as strong as men. Climb the corporate ladder and establish woman power. Then you'll be able to teach the, the younger women to break the shackles of submission first to their husbands and then to the all men in general. That's how the world would want Paul and us to read this text. But sisters, whether you be young or old, let me ask you a question. Um, how, do you, how do you know if you've adopted the world's agenda at the expense of God's? How do you know you've traded the agenda? I think the answer is pretty simple. If you don't associate loving and submitting to your husband with godliness, then you've adopted the agenda of the world. If you don't associate loving your children with godliness, then you've adopted the, the world's agenda. If you don't associate taking care of the home with godliness, you've adopted the world's agenda. These are all the basic things that Paul assumes and Titus is to assume uh, goes with godliness that flows out of the gospel. Now, there's other things as well. But if we don't associate these things, the way we interact with your, the husband and the children and the home, we are probably more like the world than we think. But let's be frank. To many of us today, 
these items, like taking care of the home, are more chores that we would rather pay other people to do so that we don't have to do them, more than godly works to be gladly done by God's daughters. Right? These are trivialities. As opposed to wonderful works that God has created women to do specifically. Now here, I'm not addressing whether or not working in the home or outside the home is sinful or not. Specifically outside the home. You could work outside the home and it would be really sinful. But you could also work outside the home and it might be really godly. It all depends on the situation, right? So there we just have to check our motives. If we find our identity in, let's say, our work primarily as opposed to a daughter of god that's sinful but if we're striving to take care of uh if we're striving just to pay the bills and live you know let's take example for the for example of the single mother it's godly that she go and work and it's godly that the church go and help her as well as first timothy says but that that's kind of a different conversation here let's now switch to young men with all those comments on women paul then moves on to younger men look at verse six he says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That's it. We're done. We're much better off than the single women and the younger women and the older women, aren't we? Us young men. It, it's so funny here because this, this, this self-controlled issue is our issue, isn't it? If you're a young man, you might have struggled to go to sleep on time last night so that you can wake up on time and stay awake in service and be ready to praise God with the people. You might struggle with very sins, some certain sins as you're watching the television or as you're surfing the internet. You might struggle with a lack of ability to control how you spend your money and finances to the praise of God's glory. You might struggle with taking care of the work responsibilities that God has given you. Maybe you're a bit lazy. You might struggle to use your mental faculties well and be self-controlled in how you dedicate and fix your mind upon true things as opposed to irrelevant things debased things <laughs> self-control is our issue isn't it if we are a young man titus here he goes on and titus is to be a model to these young men in your teaching show integrity seriousness soundness of speech that you cannot be condemned so you know here he's thinking about frivolous words he's thinking about joking um, coarse joking especially and then he addresses slaves finally to slaves now here paul's not condoning slavery right he's writing to christians wherever they might find themselves in society certainly slaves are being converted as we know from the book of philemon and paul says slaves are to be subject to their masters and everything or submissive they are to be well-pleasing not argumentative not pilfering, but showing all good faith. You know, again, we have to move quickly through these things, but you know, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, and you know Christians, or at least maybe the one that brought you to church, and you know that they're different, and you're wondering, why in the world are they different? Why do they have, you know, why are they not getting drunk like me? Or dating like me? Or cheating on their wives like me? What makes them different? Why is it that they, why do they do what they do? Ask them about it. The greatest thing you can do is ask them about why they choose not to do those things. And it should point them right back to the gospel. Because as these verses say from 11 to 14, Jesus Christ gave himself 
so that he would redeem us out of those things and train us to say no to those things, but train us to love him. So it's like all those things that are not him, that is God and all his perfections, he trains us to say no. And all those things that are him and all of his perfections, we then say, yes, we want all those things. All those holy things, those loving things, those caring things. We want those. You know, if it hasn't become clear yet, uh, Paul is after much here. He's after how we are to live, to display the gospel. He's also after how we are to interact with one another as a church. So you get the older to younger issues. Um, it's really beautiful here. He's, he's, he's wanting the church to be a family to a community that doesn't know very much about how they are to act in the family. And so in 1 Timothy, he says this, <clears throat> 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, he says that we are to encourage the older man as a father, the younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So for us as a community, we're interacting with one another to display God's glory to the watching world, to be distinct from the world, like a family. Older fathers, older men, treat them as fathers, etc. You know, our generation, um, most of us have been poorly taught. Most of us have been poorly taught. And you can see this in pop culture. You know, you, know, you, you get those, those movies where the guys are saying, you know, don't diss my mama. I'm going to protect my mom. Don't say those things about my mom. And yet they themselves are disobeying their moms so clearly. I mean, how in the world is that love? And the way you look at the elder, older generation, sometimes, you know, the older generation is an expense we maintain. They're a bill to us. As opposed to a commodity we seek after. Yeah, if we believe in Titus, you know, chapters 1 and 2 and 1 Timothy, God's going to change our relationships, isn't he? Take teachability, for example. So now, you know, I'm, I'm asking, I'm speaking to the younger folks. Take teachability here. If you want to know you've adopted the, the world's agenda, look at how teachable you are to older folks. Younger guys and younger gals, um, are you teachable to the older men and women here? How's your love for older Christians here, more mature Christians? In what ways do you think in your mind and strategize about how you are to honor them and respect them? How many, how many, how many times does that go through your head? Because I can guarantee you this, that the older generation is probably thinking about, let's take parents for example, how they can benefit you, generally speaking. And much of their thought and energy and money goes to, how can I benefit the younger? But the younger, they're just taking. And that's kind of normal. You know, you, you, no one caused you to be born. Your parents gave you birth. Uh, and then they feed you because you can't. And then maybe they support you. They take you to your games and whatnot because you can't. And then eventually as you become to, be, become to fill the shoes as, as an adult, you know, you learn to flex your independent muscles. And part of flexing those independent muscles means that you go back and you learn to care. Right? You know, again, speaking to us younger folks, looking towards the older, maybe you just don't care about them. Maybe it's not that bad. Maybe you just don't think about them. But when you think about them, you care about them. 
You might attend the same church as them, but other than that, you don't really bother to know them. And unfortunately, you may even consider yourself a healthy Christian. But I don't see how you can associate those things together and call yourself a healthy Christian and say something like, you know, I love studying the doctrine of the Trinity, which is community, by the way. But then you disregard some people in your community. You say, I'm really passionate about using my gifts, which are to build up the church. But you don't really care about ministering to the church. That says it's all about me and never about others. But when you look at the gospel, it's so different, isn't it? It's all about others in the gospel. That's why Jesus takes on flesh to die for others. And so in the book of Philippians, Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, other people. So if you've been around for, let's say, six months and you don't know the names of everyone, uh, every one of our older members, the folks who attend here, probably reveals that you don't take much interest in them. Would you agree? And that goes both ways. Okay, so if you're an older member and you are struggling to know, let's say, the members who have been here for a year, as opposed to, you know, the new folks, you know, a bunch of new folks. Uh, I'm talking about the people who've been here for like, let's say a year, and you don't know their names. It probably reveals that you just don't take much interest in these people. There's a lot of challenges in building up this particular church. There's a lot of turnover, let's say. There's a lot of people who are going to come in. There's a lot of people who are going to visit and maybe decide that they ought to go somewhere else. Um, but for those of us who stick around, there's a lot of challenges in building this one local church. Different cultures, different generations, different languages different desires and we're all trying to get along for the gospel's sake because jesus saves all different kinds of people all men whether they be hispanic background caucasian american asian american but yet for us younger folks there is a tremendous opportunity here to honor those who are older in the faith right they have stories They got stories about how they became Christians and how they struggled to trust in Jesus, how they remained faithful at work, how they evangelized their co-workers. Is there nothing that we can learn from them? Wouldn't it be an amazing testimony of the gospel to your generation, though we might not live in Crete, where robbery is legitimate form of earning income, but our context is beset with issues, right? Our generation says... Older folks are to be disregarded, ignored, not to be listened to, and in fact, disinteresting, uninteresting. But what a testimony it would be, right? If we listened to God's word and believed and acted upon what God's word says, Job 12, 12, wisdom is with aged men. With long life, there is understanding. Proverbs 17, 6 says, grandchildren are a crown of old men. And the glory of sons is their fathers. Proverbs 16.31 says, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. What a fantastic witness we could be to the watching world of how we interact with one another. Here's, here's a really negative example. Um, let me ask you a question first. When was the last time you asked advice from your parents? Now, to some of you guys, you might be thinking, yeah, I, I, you know, I know Robert. He talks to his, his father like every week, which is awesome. 
but some of us, you know, you're thinking like, okay, August, July, June, May. You know when the first time I remember asking advice from my parents? The first time I remember was, I think, at age 22. That's a fool right there. Me. Saying that there's nothing that they can offer me because I know everything, don't I? And even though my parents at the time might have not known everything, there certainly is something that they do know much more than I, right? What an amazing testimony of the gospel we could be here when we cherish and honor and respect those who are in the church who are elders. And then Paul also addresses uh, how we are to, to care for pastors. And I'm not thinking about myself, although it certainly applies to me. But here I'm thinking about Pastor Rick. The brother has been faithful, right? He's been around this church longer than many of us have been alive, which is incredible. I mean, you guys even know Pastor Rick's story? It is awesome. And up here, you know, you may recognize he, he jo- he's a joker. Many of us appreciate his jokes. Um, he strives to teach us the word faithfully. And what's certainly clear is that he has a big heart for life issues, you know? This is why he talks about things like abortion regularly. It's why he talks about things like foster care and adopting. Right? There's a reason why he speaks about those things. And sometimes you see him up here and he's brought to tears over those things. Have you guys ever asked him what his story is? How he became a Christian? How his walk with Christ has been? It's, it's truly remarkable and a huge encouragement. I strongly encourage you guys to do that. Maybe a bunch of you guys just uh, organize yourselves and call him up and say, hey, can I meet you for breakfast at 7 a.m., which is when I meet him. For him, actually, it's lunchtime because uh, he gets to work at like 3 a.m. or something like that. Um, but organize yourselves. Go up there and learn from his story. This is a man that you guys can learn from as he is a God-given pastor. And if you are a member of this church, he's the pastor that you have submit, chosen voluntarily to submit yourself to. Pastor Rick and myself. What a fantastic witness to the watching world this could be. This is the last point, gospel witness. So we looked at the gospel, then we looked at gospel community, how we are to interact with one another. And then we hear we have the reason why we are to live a certain way. Did you notice that in 2.5? Look there in 2.5. Why are they, the young women, and, and to interact with the older women and to learn? Why are they to be self-controlled, pure, working at home and submissive to their own husbands? That the word of God may not be reviled. Who's doing the reviling, possibly? It's the Cretans, right? And then you look at 2.8. Why are the younger men to be living in a self-controlled way? Why is Titus supposed to be a model of good works? Look at the end. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's the Cretans. And then you look again in, in verse 10. Why are the slaves to be submissive to their own masters? At the end of 10. So that in everything... They may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's like they're putting on the doctrine of God. The doctrine of salvation. Of God our Savior. So the ways that we interact with one of the ways that we behave is a positive testimony to the world about who our God is. It protects the gospel. It promotes the gospel. And it says to the world, we are who we say we are. We are Christians. So that's the gospel witness there. So how are you guys doing? How are you guys doing? Whether you be older or whether you be younger, how are you doing in protecting the gospel 
in the ways that you behave, both as individuals, but then also as a community. Because I guarantee you, people are going to look at you and say, you sure you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're doing things right here? You like not drinking? You like having no mamacita on the side? <laughs> and we can say, yes, we glory in Jesus Christ more than anything else that the world has to offer. And so in the middle of these ailments and disorders, we then can say, okay, you community over here, you act like this, but look at the way we act. Uh, on a side note, I, I was doing some research last night, and did you know that in La Puente, the sexual offenders, the ratio to sexual offenders to non-sexual offenders is extremely high in comparison to other cities around here? It's 378 to 1. That is unusually high. Okay, you look at someplace like Hacienda Heights, you're looking at 1,200 to 1. So for some reason, right across the street, there's literally right across the street, there are <clears throat> 100 sex offenders. How do you think that that community thinks about sex? How do you think that they, when, when these, maybe th their families get together, you know, are, are they patting themselves? Are they encouraging one another? What does what battling against sexual temptation look like? So if we are to reach the community, you know, they're going to see us and say, oh, my goodness, you know, they struggle because they're sinners. But look what they do for one another. Look at how they encourage one another in the faith. Look at how they try and restore one another when they've sinned against one another. That's a community that I know nothing about because I don't believe in Jesus. And yet they say, I was once like that. I mean, we may not have uh, committed certain sexual offenses. But we certainly know what sexual immorality is like, don't we? And you see already the ways in which we behave and the ways in which we interact with one another really holds out the gospel of truth to the watching world. That's what God wants of our church. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father in heaven... Lord, you desire us to be holy because you are holy. We know, Lord, that we don't need to feel the weight or the burden, like, like your laws are a burden to us. But, Lord, they are a wonderful instruction to us by which we can believe and act and so, once again, hold out the gospel of truth. That we are sinners saved by grace through the cross because Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we might be free. And forgiven and reconciled to you, our good Father. Lord, we praise you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for sins and saving us, but also purifying us for yourself. How awesome is it that we, imperfect people, are being perfected to be crowns on the crown of your head that brings glory to ultimately you and your glorious being, your perfections. Father, we pray that we as First Baptist Hacienda Heights, that we in fact would be a display of your glory to the watching world and the ways that we interact with one another as a church, particularly how we honor and respect those older than us. Lord, we pray that the world would be so curious to know why we love the older generation, why the older generation loves the younger generation and seeks um, to do each other's spiritual good cause our hearts to enlarge and for those who are different than us and lord we pray that we would flee from pride 
Keep our hearts close, we pray, by your Spirit. In your name we pray.